The United States has arguably never been less Christian, but spirituality is still everywhere. The Second Vatican Council states that the Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in other religions. But does this mean that we should try every practice we hear about on a podcast or a talk show? This episode of Physically Spiritual will explore non-Christian forms of meditation. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I am captivated with discovering the truth about my body and how it relates to my relationship with God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. As we get started, I want to share some opportunities. Uh, if you want to support everything we're doing at Awaken Catholic, any of the shows, please consider becoming a part of the Awaken Nation. The Awaken Nation is a community of patrons who, for as little as a cup of coffee a week, support all of the work here. And in return, you get access to some bonus content. So join the Awaken Nation by going to awakencatholic.org forward slash donate. Consider downloading the Awaken app. The Awaken app is the best experience of all the shows here on Awaken Catholic. It also has discussion boards and premium content if you're on uh, the nation. So go to the awakenapp.io or search for the Awaken app in the App Store or Google Play Store. We are also partners with the Hollow app at Awaken. Hollow is a Catholic meditation app to help you find peace and grow in your spiritual journey. It includes a course on learning how to pray, guided meditations, a lot of free content and premium content. If you want to try the premium content on the Hollow app, go to hollow.app forward slash awaken to join with our member link. And if you want support applying any of the ideas we discuss here on Physically Spiritual, consider joining my coaching in spiritual direction practice at Becoming Gift dot com forward slash coach. So this is one of the most hotly debated topics in the church today, in my experience. There are all of these non-Christian forms of meditation that are promoted throughout our culture for their, their health benefits. You hear from people that it'll help you sleep to not stress, to lose weight, um, to become more productive, right? We have all of these desires to become better people, and as Christianity wanes in our society, as less and less people are, are fully given to the gospel, people still have the desire for greatness, the desire for holiness. They still feel a sense of incompleteness. So oftentimes people turn to non-Christian practices for those answers, whether it be answers through the New Age movement or answers that are based on other ancient religions, whether it be Buddhism, Hinduism, or even sometimes uh, American Native religions. So in today's episode, what I want to do is take a, a deep dive into this, into this space, because the church has given some guidance for, for Christians and for Catholics on how to approach these topics. But in many cases, there isn't definitive practical advice from the church of whether these practices are condemned or whether these practices are, are acceptable. Um, and so there are, are some very popular teachers in the church whom wholeheartedly embrace some of these Eastern practices or non-Christian practices. And there are others who speak grave warning and, and, and dire almost threats that these are harmful for the soul and that these can lead a believer off course. Um, so what should we do in the midst of this, where there, there isn't perfectly clear guidance from the church and, and seemingly trustworthy authorities from different parts of the church are 
are sharing different practical advice. Um, what I want to do with this episode is to, to give you tools to think about it. My plan isn't to wade in here and just give you another opinion, but um, with these um, non-Christian practices, oftentimes comes the worldview, the theology, and the understanding of the human person that goes along with the religions or the practices that these things are based upon. Um, so one of the primary concerns of the church is that by by picking up these non-Christian practices, it's also going to affect the believer's worldview and then draw them away from the faith or into something more dangerous. So what I want to offer, at least in the beginning of this episode, is a sort of an inoculation against this. I think we need to to settle in and uh, and really deeply marinate ourselves in our story, in the story of the gospel, in salvation history, and in the history of my own redemption and salvation. And then from this, we can then take a look at some of the most common ideas and concepts that we find in these non-Christian practices and identify specifically what about them is, is contrary to either the Christian worldview or the express doctrines of the church. Then after we do this, I want to take a, a look at some of the church's guiding documents on how to approach these topics and then shift to actually think of some of the, the main practices that people get into, things like yoga, mindfulness, and transcendental meditation. So let's dig in. First, with our story. What is the Christian story? What, what are these beliefs that we have to safeguard against? Well, here's the quick version. God, from all eternity, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a, a community of love, and from this place, as a, as a gratuitous gift of love, God creates the universe. This creation isn't just a moment in time, a first beginning, but it's an ongoing relationship. So we believe the creation itself is independent from God. It doesn't add anything to God. God is, is infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, um, eternal, separate from the creation, and yet the creation itself, although is separate from God, is not independent from God. So the creation itself requires at every moment God's subsistent um, support. The, the creation itself doesn't hold itself in being, isn't complete without God's involvement. So in the midst of this, God chose to bring about human beings, right? That we are created in God's image and likeness, that we, we can know the truth, and, and are free to do the good, and then we're made for communion, we're made for connection with one another in a way that's more like the divine relationship than any other thing in the created order. Our first parents, created in a state of beatitude and given special graces to live in that space, fall into sin. And as a result, their, their mind is darkened, their will is weakened, their passions go all over the place, and they experience disconnection. Right, And this is the idea of, of sin, that, that we were created for love and by love, and yet we chose to, to leave that relationship. In time, then, God, by another act of gratuitous love, becomes human to save us. And this is Jesus Christ's work, that Jesus Christ would become man and then die for our sake um, to save us. And now we're invited into that salvation by, by believing in him and by being baptized, uh, and by this then receiving the divine life. Um, 
So within this Christian story, within this story, we have to understand um, also the Christian understanding of body and soul, that we believe we're physical and spiritual beings, that the soul is the form of the body, that the soul is the, the animating force of the body, um, but that we have a distinct and individual body and soul that becomes in the image and likeness of God, but remains independent. And also from this perspective, since God is both the source of revelation, right, the source of scripture and the source of the, the definitive revelation in Jesus Christ, yet also God is the creator of the universe. We believe whether we discover truth through reason or we discover the truth as revealed to us through faith, that in either case, it has the same source, uh, that, that the truth through, that we discover through it, like a scientific method or a natural kind of discovery, or the truth we come to through a gift of faith or through studying revelation, that it all comes from the same source, and that's the Lord. And this is that quote from the Second Vatican Council that I started with. The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. Now note that, that there's, a, there's a qualifier on that. It implies that the church does reject some things from other religions if they're either not true or not holy. So from this vantage point, that, that really quick and, and probably poorly explained uh, rundown of the Christian message, let's talk about some of the most common um, phrases that are thrown around or ideas that are thrown around by, um, by either uh, expressions from the New Age movement or, or different integrations of non-Christian spirituality. So one idea you'll hear a lot is that the physical world is an illusion, right? That the physical world is an illusion. Either that the, the world around us is just a projection of our consciousness or that the, the physical world is somehow not really there or not really substantial, right? So the, the path of enlightenment or the path of discovery, the path of holiness is a path of discovering that all of it is an illusion, and then you reach kind of a state of enlightenment by that realization. But ultimately what it is, it's a rejection of the physical world, right? It's a rejection of the physical world, and it's a salvation by knowledge, by a discovery of a concept that we live by. And both of these ideas are contrary to the gospel idea. We believe the physical world is truly there, and while it's not independent, um, from needing God to hold it in existence, but that it's, it is present and we discover truth in it. But then also the other idea is that salvation isn't by knowledge. It isn't by the discovery of some secret. Salvation is through a relationship with a person who loves us and then offers us grace. All right. The second incompatible idea is that individuality is an illusion that, that when you get down to it, that there's this sort of universal consciousness or universal mind that we're all just plugged into as if we're all, each one of us is in reality, just sort of a dumb terminal connected to this mainframe that is humanity or that is existence. Um, so this idea is also not Christian, right? The idea that, that we're just, um, just a, a singular expression of a world soul or universal mind. No, we believe we each have our own soul and that we each have our own mind and while, in, in a sense, truth is a participation in God's truth, or everything we discover has, you could say, an exemplar idea in God's mind, it doesn't mean that, that our knowledge, that our understanding is not individual. 
All right. Third idea that's incompatible with Christianity, the idea of monism, monism or, or oneness, the idea that everything is just one. So this would take God and creation and stick them together to just be one thing. And then in addition to that, me and the rest of creation and just make it one thing. So individuality is an illusion. That, that distinction is an illusion. Uh, this is not a Christian idea. Even though God's involved in the creation, right? God holds it in being. God is also present to the creation by knowledge and, and present to the creation by providence. So God's both involved in the world and, and, and um, in touch with what's happening in the world, in addition to being present as the, the cause of the world. Um, this doesn't mean that God and the creation aren't separate. All right, the fourth incompatible idea, that emotions are the source of all suffering. Yeah, emotions can be out of line. And, and a lot of um, non-Christian religions get to this point that to, to find peace is ultimately a rejection of emotion, right? That all of it is an illusion, that all of it needs just to be passed through. The Christian idea is that even our emotions, even our passions are redeemed. So our, our attractions and repulsions in the redemption are, are brought up and they become a, a motivation, a drawing force that also brings us to the Lord, right? Uh, we believe in heaven as a beatific vision or this, this experience of God that we're drawn in, and it's a passionate experience. It's an experience of emotion as well as knowledge and will. All right, fourth idea that is not compatible with uh, the Christian worldview is the idea of chakras, the idea of, of chakras that there's sort of these these places where um, where there's a convergence of energy in the body. Um, so implicit in this is this idea of energy that that's thrown around um, from this idea of monism that everything is one that God is part of, that God is creation are are the same thing. Um, there's this vague notion of energy that's often expressed. And it's really a confusion between the physical and the spiritual. Um, so there's this vague notion of energy that's considered the expression of spirit. Um, the Christian idea is that we receive grace from God. God gives us his divine life. And grace can, can certainly give us motivation. Grace can, can interact with the physical world, even miraculously give us um, strength. But energy itself is a, is a physical reality. So the energy itself is, um, whether it just be what we understand through science as electricity or the energy of the body being a, a chemical reaction of ATP becoming ADP, right? We, we understand that this idea of energy, this idea of electricity um, has a, a scientific explanation and that, that grace is not identified with that, that while grace might, um, might provide for energy, energy and grace are not the same thing. So this idea that there are certain points where the energy flows, and then from this various therapeutic techniques that somehow um, affect these places, isn't a Christian idea. Now, I, I saw an opinion paper once where these researchers had discovered that the mitochondria in someone's body, which are are sort of the, the power plants in the cell, that these these energy centers actually communicate with each other through biophotons, so light that's produced through through the organic substance. Because these mitochondria, we believe, are ancient bacteria 
that entered a symbiotic relationship with one of our distant ancestors. Um, and so they have their own DNA, for example, or RNA. I'm not sure if they have both. Um, so these, um, these mitochondria can communicate with each other based on this opinion paper through these, this light energy. And when they traced it, the places of convergence of this light were um, roughly lined up with the traditional idea of chakras. Now, if this, is the, if this is the case, if we can scientifically demonstrate this to be true, then it's not something the church would reject as a physical phenomenon. But oftentimes, these non-Christian religions present these as a spiritual phenomenon. And so there's this confusion that happens between what's spiritual and what's physical, this um, um, bringing the two um, into one thing. So from this too, um, from a, a different background is the idea of a meridian. There are these sort of channels of energy through the body. And so um, healing is often presented as um, a, a clearing of blockages to this spiritual energy that's, that's flowing through the body, um, sometimes through the practice of Reiki. Now, the, the church has actually put forth uh, the, in the United States a guidance document on the practice of Reiki that, it, that it's not consistent with the church's understanding of the human person, and that it shouldn't be practiced in religious, Catholic religious organizations. And I'll link that document in the show notes. But similarly to the idea of chakras, if if there's something about a meridian that's just a physical reality that we don't understand yet, right, that science hasn't discovered an explanation for why this is the case, then it's not necessarily something the church would reject. But what we're saying is it doesn't fit within the, the Catholic worldview of how we understand the spiritual life. See, the, the idea that the soul is the form of the body, this comes from Aristotelian philosophy and is developed in the church's theological and philosophical tradition. And part of it is that, that the spirit itself is not localized to a singular part of the body. So um, in, um, in Aristotle's De Anima, on his writings on the soul, he talks about that the whole soul is in relationship with every part of the body. So in a sense, my whole soul is present to every part of my body. And while there may be certain parts of my body that actualize certain powers of the soul in a more acute way than other parts of the body, that there isn't like a like my soul is just connected to my brain and then the rest of my body is then not connected to my soul. So this idea that this, that spirit is localized in certain part, parts of the body um, is incompatible with that idea that the soul is the form of the body. All right, just a few more. The idea of reincarnation. So this idea that we live multiple lives and that we're brought back. The Christian idea is that that we do, in a sense, reincarnate once, but we we die once. We're, by God's mercy, hopefully, given the gift of heaven. And then in the second coming of Christ, we're, we're given a glorified body. Our body's glorified and, and restored to us. So there's sort of one reincarnation at the end of time, but not this idea of, of multiple reincarnations. Uh, there's a notion out there from a, a New Age stream of thought called The Secret. There's, there's documentaries about it on Netflix you can find. So this idea of The Secret is sometimes called the law of attraction. And the idea of this is that we make things happen by wanting them to happen. Um, the, the ultimate problem with this is we're attributing to the human desire, the human heart, and the human will, the powers of God's will and of God's heart. So the traditional Christian idea is providence, right? That God's involved with everything 
in his providential love, ordering all things to the greatest good possible. And so this force that's in the world, in a sense, influencing everything is, is God in his involvement. My will, while it affects me, and then certainly has a, a strong influence on my body, my physical state, my mindset, could even possibly um, affect our body in ways we don't even understand yet. And then through that, then affect the people around me, right? How I'm presenting myself to the world, how I'm influencing other people, the mindset I'm bringing to the world. Um, we don't believe that that the human will influences um, the, the world around it beyond our immediate sphere of influence, beyond our intercession to God, right? So the Christian idea is that we're dependent on God to interact with the world beyond what we can actually control, where this idea of the secret is that my human will, my human desire, my human thought has, has a power that emanates out beyond my obvious sphere of influence and into the world around me. So it's usurping something of that we would classically have considered God's role in the world for the human role in the world. And then the final thing to be careful about is the predominance of technique. The predominance of technique. It's, it's really a subtle idea that we're saved through works, right? That, that I can do something well enough to make myself what God wants me to be. Right? The Christian idea is that we're always dependent on grace. And while, um, while my growth is sort of a marriage between my will and the divine will, right? I'm giving all of myself and God's giving all of himself. And in this, in this exchange of love between God and I, right? That's the point of salvation. That's the point of growth. That's the point of holiness. These non-Christian religions have a, an, an emphasis on technique, that, that progress, that doing quote-unquote prayer better or meditation better is just a matter of perfecting technique and then doing it consistently, where the Christian notion is that I'm capable of communion with God and prayer to the extent that I'm able to receive the grace that God's offering me. And while technique can be helpful in that process, ultimately what's required for spiritual growth is moral perfection. So to the extent that I grow in the image and likeness of God, I become, uh, for lack of better terms, compatible or able to receive the grace that God is offering me. And by receiving that grace, then I'm able to continue to conform my life more to the Lord, and then the Lord's offering me more grace. So there's this continual growth process, but there's no growth in prayer without a, a matching growth in the quality of my virtue, of, of my ability to be the person God is calling me to be. So growth in prayer is not just a matter of technique. It's a matter of becoming like the Lord and then experiencing intimacy with the Lord to match. All right, so that's just a quick rundown of some of these non-Christian ideas. And, and as I'm saying this, you're, you're probably hearing echoes of, of different um, presentations maybe you've heard on other podcasts or on um, talk shows or, or articles you've seen in magazines or maybe books you've read about these non-Christian religions um, or these ideas coming into play. Uh, typically, these ideas are, are coming from a, an amalgamation of, of three different sources. We have uh, something in general you might characterize as the New Age movement. Um, we have um, religions of, um, of Asia, like Buddhism, Hinduism, or um, 
or different even even uh, Japanese or, or Chinese religions. And then we also have native religions of the United States, whether it be an, kind of from an Incan path, some kind of shamanism, or some kind of naturalism. Um, so these are, are typically the sources of where these insights come from. Hopefully this gives you, uh, starts to give you some context of, of how to start thinking about these things in your own life. But let's take it a step deeper. Let's actually look at the church's documents a little bit to get a little more guidance on the topic. So the, the guiding document on this from the Second Vatican Council, which is the last gathering of all the bishops in the world to get together to repropose the church's teachings um, to the modern audience. So this document called Nostri Aetate, in the second paragraph, it says, The Catholic Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in these religions. She regards with sincere reverence those ways of conduct in life, those precepts and teachings which, though differing in many aspects from the ones she holds and sets forth, nonetheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. Indeed, she proclaims and ever must proclaim Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, in whom men may find the fullness of religious life, in whom God has reconciled all things to himself. So the church is saying that there's a reflection of a ray of the truth, which enlightens all men. So remember, all truth is, is, has the source in God, whether it's in creation or whether it's in revelation. So in these religions, there's a, a, a reflection of one of those rays, meaning there's something that they've discovered through their own prayer, through their own encounter with the natural world, their own, in a sense, macro-cultural trial and error through the ages of what's good and what's going to help them become um, more and more happy, that there is some true insight in that. But on the other hand, we also always have to hold out Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Um, so we can recognize the good that's there, but also then understand that there's a, a limit to it, right? Because they don't have the full and definitive revelation in Christ. And then from that, be able to discover either insights on how, um, on how we can, um, we can live our, our Catholic faith better, or even discoveries through natural reason that can be applied for, for natural healing, so in 1989, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith um, published a letter to kind of go deeper on this topic, give more insight into this topic. It's called A Letter to the Bishops of the Catholic Church on Some Aspects of Christian Meditation. So note, this is written to the bishops of the church who have the teaching authority within their own diocese um, to, to teach on these topics. So ultimately, if you're wondering what to do and you're looking for guidance, you know, speaking to your own pastor, or if there's a way for you to communicate a question to your bishop, like that's a great place to go and get the concrete local guidance on your local situation. And this is one of the reasons why I'm going to stick to a lot of the um, the concepts here, because I don't know your situation and I don't know your local pastors. So the second paragraph of this document states, the ever more frequent contact with other religions and their different styles and methods of prayer has in recent decades led many of the faithful to ask themselves what value non-Christian forms of meditation might have for Christians. Above all, the question of Eastern methods, which then the document talks about uh, specifically yoga, uh, Zen, and transcendental meditation, and we could also um, include in there kind of a mindfulness meditation. Some people 
Today, turn to these methods for therapeutic reasons, meaning for uh, medical reasons. The spiritual restlessness arising from a life subject to the driving pace of a technologically advancing society also brings a certain number of Christians to seek in these methods of prayer a path to interior peace and psychic balance. This psychological aspect is not dealt with in this present letter. So the church is saying there could be a psychological benefit to these practices, and the church isn't weighing in on on whether or not it's actually beneficial on a medical level, a psychological level, a psychological or a scientific level. Um, It says that we want to, which instead emphasizes the theological and spiritual implications of the question. Other Christians caught up in the movement toward openness and exchanges between various religions and cultures are of the opinion that their prayer has much to gain from these methods, observing that in recent times, many traditional methods of meditation, especially Christian ones, have fallen into disuse. They wonder whether it might not now be possible by a new training in prayer to enrich our heritage by incorporating what has until now been foreign to it. So what he's saying is um, that this openness to religion that we're invited to from the Second Vatican Council has led some people to study these other forms of prayer and wonder if these methods might be more attractive to a modern audience to help them um, to enter into an authentic prayer life. All right, paragraph 12 of this document is kind of the next key. I'm going to do three paragraphs in this document to kind of give us a framework to think about. Paragraph 12 says, With the present diffusion of Eastern methods of meditation in the Christian world and in ecclesial communities, we find ourselves faced with the pointed renewal of an attempt which is not free from dangers and errors to fuse Christian meditation with that which is non-Christian. Proposals in this direction are numerous and radical to a greater or lesser extent. Some use of Eastern methods solely as a psychophysical preparation for a truly Christian contemplation. Others go further and using different techniques try to generate spiritual experiences similar to those described in the writings of certain Christian mystics. So what I'm saying is there's this integration of the different prayer types happening. The church is recognizing there are some dangers in this. They're saying some are sort of using these uh, methods separately, maybe as a preparation for prayer or as a therapeutic practice. Others are mingling Christian prayer and non-Christian prayer together to create a new method, a new method of Christian prayer to try. It says, still others do not hesitate to place that absolute without image or concepts, which is proper to Buddhist history on the same level as the majesty of God revealed in Christ, which towers above finite reality. To this end, they make use of a negative theology, which transcends every affirmation seeking to express what God is and denies that the things of the world can offer traces of the infinity of God. Thus, they propose abandoning not only meditation on the salvific works accomplished in history by the God of the Old and New Covenant, but also the very idea of the one and triune God who is love in favor of an immersion in the the, um, indeterminate abyss of the divinity. These and similar proposals to harmonize Christian meditation with Eastern techniques need to have their contents and methods ever subjective to a thoroughgoing examination so as to avoid the danger of falling into syncretism. This idea of syncretism is, a, is an inappropriate mixing of a Christian belief and a non-Christian belief. So we're over-mingling 
to the point of, of a loss of key doctrines and core ideas to the, the Christian faith. So some of what this document is, is um, talking about is that, that the, the, the non-Christian idea of meditation is different from the Christian idea of meditation. And we touched on this in the last episode on prayer, on Christian meditation. Right? Ultimately, the Christian meditation is, is a meditation that's full and that's directed toward someone. So the Christian meditation has as its, as its end an experience of a person, the divine person. And it's, we, we get to that point by starting with something that that divine person has given us, whether it be the creation, our life, the scripture, another truth of the faith. And we think about that thing, that thing that's given to us. And by that process of thought, come to a deeper understanding, a deeper movement of the heart in order to then relate to God in a human way, in a personal way, by conversation, by prayer, or even just by a silent sitting. But it's always directed toward a person. Where the non-Christian approach to meditation is more of an pure emptying of the mind or the idea of, of not sensing anything, not being directed toward anything. And by this reaching a mental state of emptiness. And from it, then there's an emergence of a, of a, of an experience uh, of whether it's called um, nirvana or enlightenment or, or just bliss or something like that. So the the non-Christian form of prayer isn't directed toward a person. It's directed toward an emptiness from which an experience emerges. All right. So let's get into, um, some of the practicals with this document. In paragraph 28, it says, some physical exercises automatically produce a feeling of quiet and relaxation. Pleasing sensations, perhaps even phenomenon of light and of warmth, which resemble spiritual well-being. To take such feelings for the authentic consolations of the Holy Spirit would be a totally erroneous way of conceiving of the spiritual life, giving them a symbolic significance typical of the mystical experience when the moral condition of the person um, concerned does not correspond to such an experience would represent a kind of mental schizophrenia, which could also lead to psychic disturbance and at times to moral deviations. So what it's saying is these, these practices, these mind-body practices, whether it be a movement or a thought pattern or some technique of mind, will automatically produce in the body feelings of quiet and relaxation, different sensations, different experiences of, of light, different phenomenon in the body and the brain that you'll sense and you'll feel. So what it's saying is we, we shouldn't mistake in these phenomenon of sense for uh, the result of infused prayer or gifts of contemplative prayer, gifts of grace. Um, and this is because they're produced by technique where the infused prayer comes at us, it says, through... Um, through, the, through moral uprightness, right? Through having a heart that's able to receive what the Lord is saying. Um, what it's saying is when the moral condition of the person concerned does not correspond to such an experience, right? So corresponding to that experience means entering into the illuminative way by the process of overcoming all grave and habitual sin and even working through many imperfections and attachments, going through a, a period of purification, and then this infused prayer, this contemplative prayer, becoming the normal experience in Christian prayer. All right, so then the next paragraph, though, it it gives us 
some more guidance. It says, that does not mean that genuine practices of meditation, which come from the Christian East and from the great non-Christian religions, which prove attractive to the man of today, who is divided and disoriented, cannot constitute a suitable means of helping the person who prays to come before God with an interior peace, even in the midst of external pressures. So what it's saying here is some of these Eastern techniques might be suitable to help prepare a Christian to pray, meaning they're not prayer in and of themselves, but they may provide the body, the mind, they might provide the brain, some practical benefit that would help you focus in prayer or enter into that meditation or conversation with the Lord with more attention and more consistency. So this is this is um, sort of what the, the universal church has weighed in on these topics. There's an additional um, guiding document that the bishops of Spain have produced recently. Um, while not for the universal church, it takes a little bit of a harder line on this issue because certainly in the last 30 years, um, all of this has become much more predominant. Um, so let's dig into now some of the specific practices that people get into. First, let's talk about yoga. Let's talk about yoga a little bit. Um, one thing to recognize is that the contemporary practice of yoga is different from the, the traditional idea of yoga um, in its original context, in its context out from the kind of the Vedic tradition in the Indian subcontinent that has led to then the religions of Buddhism and Hinduism. So there are two um, predominant Catholic organizations that do exercise like yoga, but don't consider themselves to be Catholic yoga. And I want to read a statement through one of them, Pietra Fitness. The other one is Catholics, but Pietra Fitness, and there's other other groups too, um, which you might be aware of. But they have a, a statement on their website that says, Pietra Fitness is not yoga. And I'll link it here. But I want to read a few of their, their words because I think it's helpful in thinking of this context. It says, Pietra Fitness is not Christian yoga or Catholic yoga and should never be described as such. Yoga describes an integrated whole of philosophies, spirituality, and physical practices based on Hinduism and found in Buddhism and New Age practices. The next paragraph, Patriot Fitness respectfully asserts that yoga cannot and should not be separated from its spiritual and philosophical roots. Therefore, the practice of yoga cannot be part of a specifically Christian exercise program. It says, Patriot Fitness believes that beneficial stretching and strengthening exercise can be separated from yoga, in some cases slightly modified, in other cases renamed, and redeemed in Christ for use in a Christian exercise program. Um, so they're saying that 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 some of what they do is sort of inspired by different movements, different postures, um, sometimes adjusted, sometimes just renamed out of this tradition because there's some positive benefit to the body. But they don't call themselves a Catholic yoga program because they're recognizing that yoga is something specific and something that has its own um, integral meaning. And, and part of that integral practice of yoga includes the philosophy and spirituality that goes behind it. Um, so they're not um, just sort of stripping the spiritual aspects out of yoga and then directly imitating yoga and creating a Catholic yoga program. What they're doing is they're, they're taking certain practices that are beneficial that people of yoga might do and then 
either adjusting them to make them appropriate in a Catholic context, and, but especially uh, in all times renaming them um, to distinguish what they're doing from yoga. Uh, it goes on and says, yoga is an ancient Sanskrit term for the physical practice used to develop Hindu spiritual disciplines. In fact, the word yoga means yoke or spiritual union, indicating the innate spiritual nature of the practice. Yoga teachings are thousands of years old and are detailed in the Vedas, sacred Hindu text originating in ancient India. These teachings include polytheism, monism, reincarnation, karma, idol worship, and one's own divine identity. Many of the teachings are also prevalent in Buddhism and in the New Age movement. Because these beliefs are not compatible with Christian teaching, embracing yoga would be contrary to Christianity. Now, with that said, there are a lot of practices in our modern world that call themselves yoga that actually aren't yoga. I think what Petra Fitness <clears throat> is doing here is um, is kind of a high road to not take that term if they're not embracing the fullness of the tradition. But for example, my first experience with yoga as, as a young man was when I was doing P90X. Now, there was nothing at all spiritual about P90X yoga. Um, now, they, they use that term yoga to describe a whole group of stretches. Um, but like I said, there was nothing spiritual about it. So you might not be interested in, in joining a Petra Fitness group, but you might have some elements of your exercise program that are inspired by different things in yoga. It goes on and says, it is important to understand that although yoga has become synonymous with stretching and strengthening exercises, there are many other important aspects to yoga. There's an, there are entire areas of traditional yoga that are often unknown to casual pr- practitioners in the, mess, in the West. It says bodily purification techniques, deep meditation methods, dietary guidelines, spiritual teachings, and philosophies. So in our modern context, much of this is often stripped out. There's a statement later on in the page, and I'll link this whole page for you to come and read because I think it's, it's really well done. It says, how is Petra Fitness different from yoga? It says, because yoga is thousands of years old, it can lay claim and does to almost every possible movement or position of the human body, including movements as innate as yawning, blinking, and breathing. The human body is made and designed by God, and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In dutifully and humbly caring for our temple, we glorify God, since all that is good and true comes from God. We can freely utilize movements that keep us well. Movements that stretch, strengthen, calm, and relax are often good for us. Despite the wide range of exercise, exercises categorized in yoga, there are over 1,500 exercises categorized as yoga, yoga does not have a patent on every, any of them. You should not feel guilty for doing ordinary and natural human movements just because it's an official name in yoga. Um, so I really like the way they approach this topic because they're recognizing what's good, right? They're recognizing that certain movements have positive benefits. And at the same time, they're completely removing those movements from their context. And in the case of some movements in which there's some posture or gesture that's specifically oriented toward that that Hindu or or a Buddhist or New Age spiritual tradition, they ad- ad- adapt that movement to remove that element. And on the other hand, it's not like um, breathing or yawning or or any stretch or posture of the body is the um, is the uh, the sole um, property of yoga. Um, 
So I encourage you to read that. I'm, I'll add a couple other documents on here um, to go deeper in each one of these topics, but I don't intend to do a full presentation on any of these in particular, but just give some guiding principles, resources to look at, some pros and cons, meaning some people that take the position of kind of going all in with the topic and others who um, try to come to some kind of reconciliation of the topic and others who wholly recommend that you avoid the topic. So I'd encourage you to go deeper with it. The second idea I want to talk a little bit about is mindfulness. Mindfulness is defined as a practice of purposefully bringing one's attention in the present moment without judgment, a skill one develops through meditation or other training. That's from the, the Wikipedia article on what mindfulness is. Now note that mindfulness is not in itself um, one of these ancient Buddhist practices, but it's based on ancient Buddhist practices. Um, so it was sort of modernized and popularized in the United States by people involved in, in spirituality or psychology. And so one of the ways that it especially came to the forefront was a program developed by Jod Kabat-Zinn called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is, is really kind of an amalgamation of a, of a lot of different postures and practices and techniques out from this Vedic tradition, out from uh, the Hindu and Buddhist tradition, um, and then applied in a clinical setting to specifically help deal with stress. I think the original research was done on treating PTSD. And so there's been a lot of research done on these, on these practices. Once again, the situation isn't that it comes from another religion. The fact that it comes from another religion doesn't make it bad. But the question is what parts of it can be adopted and what parts of it cannot be adopted? What parts are, are good and helpful and true? What parts aren't? I think in general, when our, our culture approaches these topics, we oftentimes overemphasize the positive benefits and don't take into account any of the possible negative consequences. And there are some good studies that actually have dug into this, that none of these practices is without any negative possibility. Um, but on the other hand, we should recognize that there are probably certain contexts where they might be helpful in a medicinal or therapeutic setting. Um, so in the first season of Physically Spiritual, I had Dr. Greg Bataro on, who has famously written a book called The Mindful Catholic. And I actually like that title, The Mindful Catholic, because it's a Catholic, a person who's Catholic, who in the context of their Catholic life may do certain things that would be described by others as a mindfulness practice, right? And he proposes it to be done in this therapeutic setting. In that book, he adopts that MBSR program, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, stripping out of it its non-Christian elements and then sort of bookending it with Christian prayer before, in preparation, and then afterwards. Um, other of the publications that come out of his organization talk about um, Catholic mindfulness. And I don't like that title as much because I think similar to uh, Pietra Fitness, similar to that, they talk about the fact that that since they're taking certain essential elements out of the tradition of yoga, they don't call themselves Catholic yoga. Now, you might say it's a Catholic who's doing certain things like someone doing yoga or the mindful Catholic. Um, so I, I prefer the title of the book over the title he's using in other places. But I, I believe from my personal interaction that, that um, what Dr. Greg is trying to forge here is a path that as a clinical psychologist, he's proposing the mindfulness-based stress reduction program as something that can be 
beneficial and healthy. Um, others in the church, and like I said, I'll link articles on both sides. Others, others in the church are, are either more concerned that these practices aren't as helpful as might be stated, or on the other hand, could even be harmful for the believer. And I don't want to wait, wait in on all of that or even you know, try to claim myself as an authority on any of these things. Um, I can just share my, my personal experience that, that I believe um, Dr. Greg is, is sincere and really trying to forge a, a path here of, of integration in a way to help people heal, help people find peace. Um, one thing I've noticed sort of digging into this, you called a controversy, for lack of better terms, is that it seems like there's more openness to the practice in the younger generation. And one of the things that that, that document that letter to the bishops mentioned was that um, that the um, especially the modern person, in the midst of the craziness of life, the busyness of life, we experience this this lack of peace, this lack of attention. And I would say even more than that, that was written 30 years ago. I mean, that was written before the personal computer was in people's homes or before the cell phone or even the smartphone, the tablet. Just think of now the case as all of these devices have been introduced into our life. And I know I grew up from my youngest age with the computer. So I think there's something about uh, from my experience and experience of technology, um, and, and in that technology of watching TV, experiencing computers, different devices, it's really kind of an anti-meditation or an anti-mindfulness. Because what's happening with these different forms of technology, which aren't bad in, in and of themselves, we become passive receivers of whatever is presented to us. So the mind is completely shut down, right? We're not really grabbing anything. There's no active um, strengthening of attention where we're being drawn in just by attraction, right? It's just a passionate receiving of whatever's being presented to us. So one of my theories is that we actually lose uh, the muscle of attention, lose the, the, the capacity to direct the mind. And even after years and years of, of prayer and meditation, um, I still find myself very distracted, and distractions have always been a universal experience in the church, but I suspect that especially younger generations that grow up with technology have an either f- even further reduced capacity for attention. And so um, beyond the therapeutic benefits um, that I think Dr. Batar is proposing, I think that these mindfulness-based practices, notice I said that mindfulness-based practices, not just taking them on may have benefit for growing in that capacity for attention, for paying attention to something. So like I said, I'm going to link all the articles um, below, pro and con, different videos, different resources that you can dig into and make a decision for yourself um, because our, our, the bishops haven't come out definitively. Now that the Spanish bishops have um, in their document ha- expressed more concern on this topic, and so that's also in the show notes. And I'd encourage you to dig in if you're concerned or want to learn more. The third practice I want to talk a little bit about is the idea of transcendental meditation. Transcendental meditation is a practice of um, of repeating a mantra to yourself out loud or in your mind for a period of time, normally recommended for 15 to 20 minutes twice a day. This practice, in, in my experience, is really almost like a form of um, what happens is it's almost like a form of self-hypnotization. It produces a lot of different phenomenon in the mind. Um, those experiences of light that the church document was talking about are often produced from this. And in it too, it has a, 
in my experience, a, a tremendous amount of stress reduction that goes along with it. You know, so when I'm sharing about these topics, I've tried all of them in different contexts. Um, some of them I've actually regretted what I've done. Um, I think it hasn't been helpful in the long run or was harmful for my ability to pray in a Christian context. Others of them, I think, had some positive benefit, but had a limited positive benefit, meaning all of all of the great things that were sort of promised at the onset of the program, some of it was the case, but it wasn't like the, the thing that saved my life or anything like that. So one of the concerns with transcendental meditation is this confusion between the psychic experience, the phenomenon in the mind, and true Christian prayer. And I think paragraph 19 of this letter um, that the, the Congregation of the Doctrine and the Faith provided in 1989 addresses this. Paragraph 19 says, Therefore, one has to interpret correctly the teaching of those masters who recommend emptying the spirit of all sensible representations and of every concept, while remaining lovingly attentive to God. In this way, the person praying creates an empty space which can then be filled by the richness of God. However, the emptiness which God requires is that of the renunciation of personal selfishness, not necessarily that of the renunciation of those created things which he has given us and among which he has placed us. So the Christian renunciation isn't just an emptying of the mind. It's an emptying of the life of attachments. It's an emptying of the life of the things that take us away from the Lord. And so there's there's a, a popular, um, I think it used to be more popular, but it's still around, Christian or Catholic prayer technique called centering prayer. And centering prayer was essentially um, a taking on of transcendental meditation, but replacing the classic mantras, the classic, and the word mantra comes from the idea of a settling sound, um, with a, a Christian word or a Catholic word, a word from the scripture. But in practice, in the orientation of the mind, what's being done um, while you're, you're praying the meditation, the mechanism is essentially the same, but you're just replacing the mantra with something Christian and placing Christian prayer around it. So I think the real danger here is, is that, that mistaking of the psychological phenomenon with the spiritual experience the writers and proponents of centering prayer often talk about it in the context of the Catholic mystical tradition. But we have to understand that the meditation technique that, that's being proposed is different than the meditation technique being proposed by the Catholic mystical tradition. Um, so like I said, my experience of transcendental meditation was that it is almost like a self-hypnotizing technique, right? And then it produces um, predictable psychological phenomenon based on the performance of the technique, so this is not what's happening in contemplative prayer in the Catholic tradition, which is a pure gift of, of the Lord that isn't produced or sustained by the person's technique or action. It's something that the person is able to receive because of their purity of heart, because of their, um, because of their um, relationship with the Lord, and that the Lord gives them as a gratuitous gift. But once again, like I said, there's people in the church that fall on both sides of this idea of centering prayer. Um, so what I want to do is I want to, once again, a lot of links, a lot of resources, YouTube videos, articles, books that you can get to dig into the topic. Um, but like I said, I would, I would approach this one with a bit more caution, understanding that it's really easy in the practice to mistaken the psychological phenomenon for the spiritual experience and recognizing that what's being described here is different than what the tradition describes in detail.
All right, so I would encourage you to dig deeper in any of those. So just a, a few quick questions in closing here as we're thinking about assimilating these practices in our life. One, I think it's important we have to be mature in our faith, right? We have to be mature in our faith, meaning we have to be in a state of grace. We have to be firm in our belief. Um, anything we place ourselves under, whether it just be a book we're reading or a class we're taking or the mentorship of somebody else, affects us as a human person, right? I am not a, a strong independent mind that's free of all outside influence, regardless of what's being presented to me. So I need to recognize my natural weakness and that to be human is to be influenced by the people that I trust and, and believe and look up to. So if I'm placing myself under the teaching authority of anyone, they're going to influence my beliefs in my worldview. And this can happen um, even if I'm well-formed. So you have to, to one, be mature in your faith in a state of grace well-educated in the faith. You know, if, if you're uh, a Catholic and you're questioning church teaching, likely these these other faith systems are going to be attractive and probably draw you away from the church on some level. Um, and even if you are strong in your faith, it can still influence you. So I would um, advise you with a word of caution um, if you're participating in some kind of class, some kind of session, some kind of conference where one of these is being taught, that it, it's it's going to have a natural kind of influence on your mind and your worldview. Next question, is it good? Is, is what's happening here objectively moral? Is it within something that I, I really truly believe in? So, for example, one of the things that happens in a, a classic transcendental meditation context is in the context of the teaching, your, your teacher, your guru, goes around and whispers your mantra in your ear. And part of the practice is that you're, you're actually not supposed to ever use another mantra and you're never supposed to tell anyone out loud what your mantra is. Uh, and, and this sort of like preserves its integrity in your mind. But some of these mantras may be the names of Hindu gods or corresponding to different chakras um, in the body. So this word that you're given, this mantra, this settling sound that, that you're chanting may actually be... Um, something that's leading you into idol worship or, or into some worldview that isn't consistent with the Christian faith, right? So when we're looking at these practices, we have to ask, is what we're doing objectively moral, consistent with what we believe? The third, am I doing it for a good reason? Am I doing it for a good reason, right? So we might be turning to these practices because we've lost faith in the ability of God to change our life, right? We shouldn't do these practices as an effort to take back control, for me, with my will to, to change myself and to find salvation and not trust in the Lord. So we need to make sure that we're approaching it with a good intention, right? And then are we approaching it in an appropriate context, a safe context, right? Going into a, a class with 40 other people and some expert in the topic, um, going into that, looking to learn, you're probably placing yourself in a certain level of vulnerability to be influenced by their mindset and place themselves under their teaching authority. Now, on the other hand, like I said, if it's like P90X, you know, maybe some of the postures that are recommended in there or some of the words that are used in there aren't consistent with the church's teaching. So you might want to abstain from those practices. Um, or maybe you have an exercise routine that you do at home. Um, or maybe you've learned from something like Cathletics or Pietra Fitness, different movements. Um, so you got to make sure that it's in the appropriate context. And then finally, is it fitting, right? All of these practices are just a reflection of the ray of the truth, meaning there's, 
everything that's necessary for our salvation is found in the church. Everything that's necessary for our salvation is found in your local parish, right? So, so we need to lean into our tradition and make sure we're utilizing all of the tools that are present for us um, so that we aren't turning towards something um, and, and not putting ourselves under the Lord's care. So we need to stay in prayer and go deeper. All right. So I hope this episode has given you some context for, for judging and considering these practices in your life. I would encourage you to dig deeper into the church's documents, uh, to dig deeper into some of these pros and cons, these different people promoting um, these practices, different people that are, are um, naysaying these practices. And I would encourage you to make an informed decision. Consult with your pastor. Consult with your bishop. Go deep, but also be cautious. You know, go deep into, the, into our church's tradition. Go deep into the practices our faith offers us and make sure you're always giving your whole heart, mind, and body to the Lord. This show and all media on Awakened Catholic is made possible by the Awakened Nation and the Hollow app. The Awakened Nation is a community of people like you who support all things Awaken for as cheap as a cup of coffee a week and get access to exclusive content. Learn more by visiting awakencatholic.org donate. Hollow is the only audio-guided Catholic prayer app focused on contemplative prayer and traditional Catholic meditation such as Lexio Divina, Daily Examine, and the Rosary. We here at Awaken all use Hollow every day and love it. To learn more or give it a try, visit hollow.app/awaken.